Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you this Palm Sunday. Uh, Thank you for choosing to worship with us here at the Vista. Today, we are starting our Easter series, and this year in Easter, we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today, and we're going to be looking at a very familiar story, at least at the start. It's a very familiar story. It's the triumphal entry where Jesus rides into Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna and he is celebrated as he rides into Jerusalem. And, you know, we thought this has kind of become a bit of a tradition here at Vista that to help us sort of show how this might have looked, we're going to enlist the help of some of our youngest friends from Vista Kids and they are going to, uh, they're going to sort of try to reenact this, uh, this Palm Sunday thing for us. So let's give a hand to our Vista Kids as they walk through. All right, I am, uh, yeah, we can give our, give our kids and our workers a hand. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if the actual triumphal entry was that adorable or not, but, you know, um, it was also great. Everybody, everybody made it through. We didn't lose anyone. Um, no one threw a tantrum like Austin's son, I think it was last year, we had an epic display um, when one of the pastor's kids acts up, and so I think we avoided that this year as well. Um, Thank you to our Vista kids and the workers. It's always fun. So yeah, this morning we're looking at the story of the triumphal entry. And so Mark 11 verse 1 is where we're going to start in just a minute. Now, over the last several months, we have been in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Prior to that, we started uh, the year off with a, a topical series. And so it's been a little while since we have been in one of the Gospels, and we have specifically focused on the person and work of Jesus. And so before we get into our text, I thought it'd be helpful as we get into our Easter series to uh, just kind of remind ourselves collectively together of who Jesus was and so that we're all kind of on the same page. So just to remind you about Christ, 
um, he was uh, a man who lived most of his life in, in relative obscurity. Um, reality is, we don't know much about Jesus, about anything prior to age 30. Um, we, we obviously know a little bit about how he was born, but prior, and then there's this big gap where <clears throat> it wasn't until about age 30 when he began his public ministry that we, we learn much about him, all right? He was born in a very humble way. We might remember uh, he was born in a manger um, in the little bitty kind of podunk hick town of Bethlehem. It wasn't exactly a, a glamorous destination, okay? Um, he was born to an unwed teenage woman named Mary. And then he, his earthly father uh, was a blue-collar, hard-working carpenter uh, named Joseph. Um, Jesus was not wealthy. Um, in fact, uh, some would say he was actually poor throughout most of his life. He, he never owned a home. He never owned a business or anything, as far as we know. He, uh, he actually never even traveled very far from his hometown in any direction. He never went more than about 30, 40 miles in any direction from, from his hometown. He never married a woman or had any children, um, despite what the Da Vinci Code would tell you, right? Um, he, uh, he never wrote a book. He never really wrote anything, right? Uh, in fact, he, can you believe a, a, a spiritual figure that didn't have a social media account? That's like unheard of, right? He didn't blog. He didn't, he didn't write a book. He didn't write anything. The only thing we know that he wrote was at one point, he kneels down and sort of doodles something in the ground for the Pharisees to see. Outside of that, he didn't, he didn't author anything. Um, and again, we, we don't really have much recorded about him until about age 30 when his kind of weird, odd cousin, John the Baptist, baptizes him and then he starts his public ministry. Um, and, and from that moment through his death, burial, and resurrection is, is only about three years' time. And yet that's all the information that we have. And while all that stuff is true, it's also um, without question, Jesus is the most significant and important person that has ever walked the face of the planet. Um, he's, there's been more books written about him, more movies made about his life, more songs written to and about him, more study done about his life than anyone in human history. His life literally changed time, divided time. We have BC before Christ and AD, Anno Domini, which means year of our Lord. Um, and whether you're a Christian, whether you have placed your faith in Jesus, whether you believe in any of the stuff we talk about or not, there's really no questioning the fact that Jesus, um, his life, that brief three years that we have, um, he was the most significant, important person that the world has ever seen, the world has ever known. And of course, we know from reading the Gospels that while Jesus did a lot of really important things in his life, he taught some really important lessons, he preached some really great sermons, he healed a lot of people, he performed a lot of miracles, we know that Scripture is very clear that his ultimate purpose, the whole reason for which he came, was ultimately to go to a cross where he was going to die on that cross for the sin of all the world. He would literally become an atoning sacrifice, and that is why he came. That is the reason for which he came. And so we find ourselves in Mark 11, and triumphal entry starts what we call Holy Week or the Passion Week. It's the last week of the life of Christ. And what we have is Jesus riding into Jerusalem. He's on a mission to get back to Jerusalem for the purpose of ultimately going to a cross where he would give up his life as the sacrifice. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem in order to fulfill his purpose for coming. And so here's how Mark, we're going to be in Mark's gospel for our Easter series this year, and here's how Mark's gospel describes 
the triumphal entry. Chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, so Jesus and his disciples, when they drew near to uh, Bethpage, to Bethany, those were little towns kind of on the outskirts of Jerusalem, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. And so they went and they found a colt tied at the door outside of, in the street and they untied it. And then some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and then they let them go. And so this is kind of a, a side note. There's actually some debate. I, I, I never underestimate like Christians love to debate kind of pointless stuff. You ever notice that? Like this is one of those things. Some people say, well, this is a clear, this is clear evidence of Jesus's divinity and his sovereignty that he orchestrated things in such a way that, uh, you know, they would be, they would be able to, to get the cult. Jesus knew and, and orchestrated it, um, showing his divinity and his sovereignty over everything. Others say, well, it could have been that he just sort of in his humanity, like, prearranged, had this arranged with the owner beforehand and sent some of his disciples to, to get the cult that he had already talked to the owner about. And, um, and so really it doesn't matter. Uh, the reality is if you want to believe this is Jesus sort of displaying his sovereignty and his divinity, or this was Jesus simply operating in his humanity, um, it doesn't change the story either way. Um, it's not really worth time debating. The big idea here in the reason Jesus does this is because it is fulfilling a prophecy written about him hundreds of years before he came. In Zechariah 9, 9, it says uh, he is declaring that the way the Messiah would come to the people riding on a colt. Um, and so this is literally, Jesus does this to fulfill prophecy um, written about him. And so we'll pick up the story in verse 7. It says that they, uh, they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And so John's gospel tells us that those were palm branches. The other gospels just say leafy branches of some sort. Um, this is where we get Palm Sunday. And it says, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And of course, this is very clear messianic proclamation uh, from uh, Psalm 118, verse 26. They are ascribing, um, again, messianic language to Jesus, all right? And so that's kind of the story of the triumphal entry. Jesus and his disciples, he's coming into Jerusalem, and the people in this moment are celebrating Jesus. Um, they, are, they are excited. Jesus is literally at the height of his earthly popularity here. Um, he has performed a lot of miracles. He's taught a lot. Um, in fact, not long before this, Jesus literally raised a guy from the grave who had been dead for days, okay? A man named Lazarus. People were there. There were witnesses of that. And then the word began to spread. Like this guy can even raise dead people. And so everybody wants to see Jesus. So they come out and they're excited and they're shouting this messianic language. They seem to be celebrating Christ. In this moment, Jesus could have rode into Jerusalem and really done whatever he wanted. He had the people in the palm of his hand, you might say. He could have ridden into town and preached an unbelievable sermon, right? He could have ridden into town and performed some big miracles in front of everyone and really amassed an even greater following and really made an even bigger name for himself. 
But what verse 11 says is that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at, at everything that was, that was um, it was already late, it says. It was already late in the day. And so he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, this is where Mark's gospel differs a little bit from Matthew's gospel. Last year, we were in the, in the gospel of Matthew. Um, many times when the triumphal entry and all the events surrounding the Passion Week are preached, we do so out of Matthew's gospel because Matthew's gospel provides a lot of detail in some, in some ways that, that Mark's does not. But we're in Mark this year, and we're looking at Mark's gospel, which I would remind you is most likely a firsthand account from the apostle Peter. Peter and Mark were good friends later. Um, Mark was not one of the 12. And so most likely as Mark writes, he's getting his information from Peter, who was kind of known as like the leader of the disciples, okay? Mark's gospel um, talks about Jesus going to the temple and then looking around. Matthew's gospel has Jesus going to the temple as well. And immediately we have this episode called the cleansing of the temple. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes to the temple and he just wrecks shop, man. He goes in there and he sees money changing and, 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 and uh, buying and selling and he gets really angry and he drives uh, the money changers out of the temple in what seems to be a fit of rage and anger. And that's Matthew's gospel. Happens on the same day as the triumphal entry. In Mark's gospel, if you look down at verse 15, it's the cleansing of the temple story, but that happens the next day. On the day of triumphal entry, it appears he rides into town looks around, observes everything. It's already late, and so he leaves with his disciples. And then what's interesting in Mark's gospel is we have this little story kind of sandwiched between the triumphal entry story and the cleansing of the temple story. And I want to I share this story because it's only a few verses, and I, I don't know that I've ever heard it really preached. It's one of those stories we kind of skip right over as we're talking about the events of, of Passion Week. And so I just want to camp out for a little bit on these few verses and, and, and notice what happens here and see what we can kind of learn from that. Okay, here's what it says, uh, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if, it, if, uh, if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. That's the whole story, right? Like, uh, you know, we we read it and we're like, what what was, why did he, why did Jesus curse a fig tree? That seems, it's like acting like a pet, like he's really hungry and he he walks up and there's no food on it. And he's like, oh, it gets really, Jesus, this has got to be more going on than Jesus just being like hangry right here, right? There's got to be more happening than Jesus just being so unbelievably hungry that he's mad at the fig tree. And of course, there is more going on than that. There is more going on than that. I would have you notice that again, verse 11 says he goes to the temple and looks around. And then the very next uh, section, verse 15, again, has Jesus going the next day back to the temple. So this episode of cursing the fig tree uh, is bracketed by Jesus in the temple. Okay? Jesus in the temple. This little story right here is what's called an enacted parable. It's an enacted parable. Jesus often taught with parables. Parables were short stories designed to show a bigger, bigger truth. An enacted parable was the same thing, but it's where there was, there was a, a, not only just a story told, but there was an acting out in some way that would give the visual demonstration of a deeper spiritual truth. This was actually common among Old Testament prophets as well. 
So Jesus has got his disciples, after leaving the temple and seeing all of the religious activity, all the stuff they were doing, what we see in this moment is Jesus very, we'll say, frustrated, um, saddened, I think we'll use the word saddened, by the state of God's people, the nation of Israel. Um, In fact, I say saddened because in Luke's gospel, in this same storyline, it's the part where Jesus, it says, he looks and he weeps over Jerusalem. You remember that? Jesus literally weeps over Jerusalem. He is frustrated with um, essentially the, the spiritual hypocrisy. And he's using the fig tree as this example of, of something that appears um, so right and it appears so good and it appears to be uh, healthy and good. But at the end of the day, it's all leaves and no fruit. It's all leaves and no fruit. And I, I wasn't super familiar with fig trees. And so I, I have a picture here for you. This is a picture of a fig tree um, from a little bit of a distance. You know, you can see really big leaves. And so when you see a tree like this, as Jesus did, you would assume that there would be some figs on it, okay? You can't really tell from the distance, though, if there's any figs on that tree or not. So I have a closer image where you can actually see the figs. The figs actually grow kind of under the leaves. And so when Jesus saw the fig tree, immediately he was not able to tell whether there was any figs on it. But when you get closer, there should be figs growing right under the leaves, they grow along with the leaves on the tree. So Jesus sees the tree, it appears to be life-giving, it appears to have fruit, it appears to be really healthy, it appears to be really good, he gets closer, there's no fruit on the tree. And again, this is symbolic of what he's, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel. Symbolic of what he's been watching in the temple, all of the religious activity. It appears to be life-giving, It appears to be really good and holy. I mean, Israel had every opportunity to accept Jesus as the Messiah, but they did not. They refused to believe. Even the crowd that's shouting Hosanna and saying all the right things, we know that a few days after this, that same crowd is going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, right? Jesus is saddened by the spiritual hypocrisy and the sort of fake devotion to God. Essentially, what's happening in this text is that Jesus is declaring, if you will, that a particular nation, the nation of Israel in this, in this example, would no longer be the primary instrument or method by which God would operate and work and reveal himself in the world. It would no longer be a nation. And we know now after the death, resurrection of Christ, it would be the church. You see, the plan was that God would work through a particular nation. If you remember the Old Testament, it's the story of the Hebrew people. It's the story of the nation of Israel. God came to Abraham and said, I will build a nation through you. And the goal is that through this particular nation, all nations of the earth would be blessed. All nations will know who God is and see his grace and his mercy and his love because of the way these people would be, they would belong to him. The problem is, as you read the Old Testament, what you find is they never, they never fulfill that, do they? They're rebellious, they're disobedient, they continue to walk in sin, they don't keep the covenant. And so Jesus is literally sort of lamenting this. He goes to the temple, he sees all the religious activities, all leaves, no fruit. All leaves and no fruit. And so now, hopefully you and I understand this, that now the primary means through which God will work in the world to reveal his glory, his beauty, the hands and feet of Christ in the world will now be the church. The church will be established right after the resurrection of Christ. And it's through you and me, it's through the church, that God works and operates to reveal who he is to a lost and dying world. This is a really important story. It's a really important few verses. 
because of that simple truth. If you and I, as the church, are going to be the people God wants us to be in the world who reveal the glory and the beauty and the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God, then you and I need to be people that bear fruit. We need our spiritual lives to not be all leaves and no fruit. That's kind of the big lesson, if you will. Don't let your Christian life be all leaves and no fruit. Look really good on the outside, but on the inside, having no real love and affection for Jesus, bearing no fruit. So here's the question for us this morning in the brief time we have left, right? What can we learn from this particular little episode? How do we bear fruit? What does bearing fruit even look like for us? That's what I want to do in the last few minutes we have. I want to talk about some very specific ways the Bible mentions Christians can bear fruit. There's a lot of, there's several different ways. There's more than one way to bear fruit, right? So I want to talk about what bearing fruit looks like for us. And then I want to just briefly, as we wrap up, talk, just give you a verse or two about how we do that, okay? So what does it look like to bear fruit? Let me start with this one. Kind of the most, one of the more obvious ones you might be familiar, and that is that our lives display what's called the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church, and he talks about when you live a life in the flesh, there is things that sort of flow out of your life. It's the, the you know, when you, when you choose to walk in the flesh, live for yourself, the acts of the sinful nature is what Paul's going to say. But he follows that up by saying, but we should be living life by the Spirit. And if you live life by the Spirit, there's different fruit that will come out of your life. Things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, okay? This is what's known as the fruit of the Spirit. One of the ways that you and I bear fruit, it's that our character, what flows out of our life is the fruit of the Spirit rather than the acts of the sinful nature. So I would encourage you to go read Galatians 5 and you can see those lists there. And here's a good question. What I want to do is just with each one of these, I want to give you a question to ask yourself. These are good questions to ask ourselves. Easter, Holy Week, hopefully it's not just a story we read and we hear every year, but we can actually take some time and evaluate our own, our own walk with the Lord. Here's the question. Does your life display the fruit of the Spirit? Simple question. Does your life display the fruit of the of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's one of the ways that we bear fruit for God. Another way that we bear fruit, according to Scripture, is through evangelism or um, helping point other people to Christ, okay? There's a lot of ways to do that, um, but the big idea is that as we live our lives, if we're followers of Christ, that we are in some way helping other people become followers of Christ, okay? So, um, again, the goal, you can call it witnessing, you can call it sharing your faith, you can call it a lot of different things. Again, there's a lot of ways to do that, but I would just ask the question this, does your life, are you pointing anyone to Jesus with your life? Through your actions, through your words, maybe your own family, your kids, your grandkids, maybe friends, acquaintances, coworkers, whoever it may be, think about this. It's a good question to ask yourself, are you pointing anyone to Jesus with your life? It's one of the ways that we bear fruit is helping point people to Christ. Another way the Bible reveals that we bear fruit is, it's going to sound pretty broad, but it, the Bible talks a lot about the fruit of our works. So good works, good works of serving, acts of service for other people. We've talked about this a lot before, that so much of life, if we're not careful, can be self-indulgent, right? It's, it's us trying to make much of us. It's us trying to climb the ladder and be successful and make a name for ourselves and and, and really, when we're living life by the Spirit, one of the ways we bear fruit is when we can get our eyes off of us and begin to get our eyes on 
others and be, be a blessing to other people, okay? And so one of the ways that we bear fruit for the kingdom of God is by good works, acts of service. Here's the question, in what ways are you serving other people? In what ways are you serving the people that God places around you, getting your eyes off of you and onto the needs of other people? It's one of the ways we bear fruit for the kingdom of God. A fourth way that the Bible talks about bearing fruit is uh, through giving or generosity, okay? The Bible's going to talk about, especially the Old Testament, um, the giving of our first fruits, okay? There there was an Old Testament principle called tithing, and some of you may be familiar with it if you've been in church for a while where someone's like, you got to give your 10%, okay? Uh, The idea behind tithing was that you give of your first fruits. You work hard, you earn some money, but you give a portion of that uh, at that time, back to the temple. Now, again, full disclosure, I, I don't believe we are under the law any longer. I think Jesus fulfilled the law is what the Bible says. And so I'm not here to preach, give your 10%. The Bible does talk about God's people in the New Testament being very generous, giving regularly, giving consistently, okay? So I don't get hung up on the 10%. It's a good principle. It's a good place to start. But it's not, I don't believe that's some kind of binding thing for the church. But the principle is still there that one of the ways we bear fruit for, for the Lord is by giving and by generosity. Again, do your resources all sort of terminate on you? Or have you found ways? We said this a few weeks ago. You might remember in the Ecclesiastes series where Solomon has this really weird statement where he says, money is the answer to everything. And most of us go, what? That doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound right. What Solomon's getting at again is that we're talking about wisdom and folly. Wise people learn to use money for good. Wise people learn to use money to help solve problems and be a blessing to others. And so one of the ways we bear fruit is through giving and generosity. Here's the question. Do you regularly and consistently practice generosity? A lot of ways to do that. A lot of ways to do that. But do you regularly and consistently practice generosity to others? It's one of the ways we bear fruit. And then finally, uh, one of the ways the Bible talks about bearing fruit, this one may, um, you may not have heard before, but it's, it's actually through worship and the Bible's going to call the praises that we give to God the fruit of our lips. The fruit of our lips. So think about that. When we come together or even when you're by yourself and you're, you're singing praises to God, you're declaring glory to God, the Bible's going to say that something really special is happening where it's literally fruit from your life given, given to the Lord. Okay? Um, now again, got to be careful because sometimes that, that can be fake worship, right? The people that shouted Hosanna, again, we know days later, we're shouting crucify him, right? So you can get caught up in the moment. It can be just an emotional thing. But if it's coming from a place of real love and affection for Jesus, the Bible's going to say that our worship is literally the fruit of our lips. And so those are some ways, there's five ways. I mean, that's the question that goes along with that. Is your worship the result of genuine love and affection for Christ? Is your worship the result of genuine love and affection for Jesus? So those are some ways, practically, that we bear fruit. That's what bearing fruit looks like, according to Scripture. A lot of different... Some of you would look at that list and say, man, I'm pretty good on some of those. Got some work to do on some of those. Never heard of half of those. I don't know. But like, that's what bearing fruit looks like. There's a lot of ways to bear fruit. Now, here's the big idea. I want to end with this. How How do we do that, right? How do we be people that bear fruit. If it's clear that God's primary means of revealing himself in the world is not some nation, it's the church, then you and I need to be people that bear fruit if we're going to fulfill our purpose. And so we've, we've seen kind of what that looks like, but here's the big idea. The big question is, how do we do that? And I want to share a verse with you from John chapter 15 real quick before we go, because it's going to tell us how. 
It's going to tell us how we bear fruit, okay? John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, these are the words of Jesus himself. Here's what he says. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, the big idea when it comes to bearing fruit for you and for me is not that we go out and we just try really hard to do this list of five things. It's not that we try to go out and just be more disciplined, work harder than the next person, really show all the fruit we're bearing. If if we just try to do that, then we're getting caught into the same trap that the, the nation of Israel got caught in. That's called religious activity, right? That is all leaves, right? But the goal is that we not be all leaves and no fruit. And so Jesus is pretty clear that if we're going to actually bear fruit, if we're actually going to do these things, that we have to stay connected to him. We have to pursue him. We have to have real, genuine love and affection for Jesus. And what you'll notice is when you have real love and affection for Christ, when you're leaning into Christ and your, your, your heart is really after Christ, then these five things, will, 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 they'll move from something that is like discipline that you have to do to something you delight in doing. Does that make sense? It'll move from discipline to delight. See, on the outside, you look at it and go, well, I've got all these things. I got, I got, to, I got these five things I got to go out and do. And, and it's like this, I got to be disciplined enough to do all these things. But what you'll find is when you really fall in love with Jesus, and the more you fall in love with Jesus, then those things aren't really discipline anymore. It's the joy and the delight of your heart to actually do those things. So if I just think, man, I've, I've really got to work on living out the fruit of the Spirit. I've got to focus on living out. Or I fall in love with Christ and I walk in step with Him and then what I'll notice is that that becomes the character of my life. That will naturally be what overflows out of my life. Or you think, man, you know, I, I've got I've to, you know, I've got to sh- tell other people about Jesus. Or if you really love Jesus, it'll be a joy for you to help point other people to Jesus. You think, man, I, I've got to do a bunch of good works. Or man, it'll be a joy for you to begin to serve other people. Oh man, I've really got to focus on giving. Or when you love Jesus, it'll be a joy for you to practice generosity. I've said it before, I think Christians ought to be the most generous people on the planet because we have been, we are the recipients of the most generosity from our Lord, right? You think, well, you know, I've got to, I got to go, I got to go to, it's Sunday, I guess I better go to worship. Man, if you really love Jesus, it'll be something you go, man, I get to go, sing praises to my king today. It's going to be a good day, right? So you see how it moves from discipline to delight? The key is staying connected to the vine. Staying connected to the vine. God's primary means of activity in our world, revealing who he is, loving people, the hands and feet of Jesus is the church. It's you and me. In order to do that, you and I need to be people that bear fruit, and we bear fruit by staying connected to Christ and who he is. Let's pray together this morning. Father, today we are grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for um, his life on this earth where he taught a lot of things and he healed a lot of people and he performed a lot of miracles. But God, we're, we're really grateful for the purpose for which he came and that was ultimately to give his life in our place for our sin 
So we are grateful today for the person and the work of Jesus on our behalf. And now, Father, I pray that you would help us to be people, help us to be a church that bears much fruit. God, I pray that you could accomplish your, your mission, your purpose through us. We want that. And we just confess that, God, sometimes we mess it up, sometimes we get it wrong. Um, but God, I pray that you would continue to work in us and through us. Help us to be people that bear fruit. And remind us, God, that in order to do that, we have to stay connected to you. So God, help, help us to abide in you on a regular daily basis so that we can bear much fruit. We thank you again for your great sacrifice for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.